Hello, Paul. I'm Chris Stewart, and welcome to a very special episode of the Empire Podcast, courtesy of the Empire VIP Club. Earlier this week, Top Gun Maverick, the sequel to the 1986 movie that turned Tom Cruise into the biggest movie star on the planet, and in his own right, the second biggest movie of last year, and the biggest movie of Cruise's career, as well as being the first of his to cross the billion-dollar barrier, made waves of a different kind when it picked up a whopping great big six Oscar nominations, including Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Editing, and Best Picture. Richly deserved, if you ask me, for one of the most meticulously crafted and emotionally satisfying blockbusters in many a year. And, as luck would have it, we are able to bring you an exclusive interview with three of the men behind that meticulous craft and emotional satisfaction. The newly minted Oscar nominees, writer-producer Christopher McQuarrie, celebrating his first nomination since winning an Oscar with The Usual Suspects, the editor and first-time nominee, Eddie Hamilton, and the legendary producer, Jerry Bruckheimer, who incredibly, after the career he's had, is also celebrating his first Oscar nomination. This interview was recorded towards the end of last year, that's 2022, if you're listening to this in the future, at a London venue as part of the Empire VIP Club's ongoing commitment to bring in its members incredible events, screenings and interviews, and featured Bruckheimer, Hamilton and Macquarie on cracking form. So cracking, in fact, that I could have sworn Ian Freer, who hosted the event, and kudos to him for doing so, supping it in for me at the 11th hour after I came down with COVID. Thank you, Ian, you did an amazing job. Ian says, this is the last question about 12 times by my reckoning. Hmm. So, an indication of how it went. Here, you will learn about how the movie came about, the trio's dedication to tracking the emotional through line of the movie, and how Macquarie, one of the greatest writers in the business, has had a late-breaking epiphany that dialogue isn't all it's cracked up to be. And there's much, much more in there as well, including their thoughts on work-life balance, which are fascinating, and how they felt when they heard Lady Gaga, Gaga's, hold my hand for the first time. And yes, I know it's Gaga. This isn't a spoiler special per se, but it did take place after a screening of the movie, so it's not spoiler averse either, and references are made to the end of the film. So perhaps don't listen to this until you've seen Top Gun Maverick. And if you haven't seen it, then what the hell have you been doing? Check it out. Honestly, it's really good. You will thank me later. Right, that's enough rambling for me. Well, almost. Because as this was a live event, there might be the odd moment where the sound levels peak. But hopefully that won't impair your enjoyment. Speaking of which, speaking of enjoyment, here it is. Ian Freer, in a conversation with Jerry Bruckheimer, Eddie Hamilton, and Christopher McQuarrie. That is good. It's very good. In fact, it's too good to be true. Enjoy. Hello, folks. How great was that? Hey, how great was that? Five. Uh, five. Five stars, Ian Freer, Empire. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, I'm delighted to welcome our very special guest this evening. Uh, can we start with the, the legendary producer of Top Gun Maverick, Jerry Bruckheimer. And the genius film editor and fourth chair in the Empire podcast, Eddie Hamilton. (laughs) 
And the eagle-eyed amongst you will know there's, a, there's another chair. So please will you welcome the writer and producer of Top Gun Maverick, Christopher McQuarrie. Hi guys, how are we doing? All good. Yeah, cool. Great how are to you? Be here, great to be. Thanks, <laughs> Joe. If we can start with you, um, when Joe Kaczynski came to you with the, you've been trying to get a Top Gun sequel made for years. Yes. When Joe came to you with his concept, what did you respond to in it? What did you like about it? It's emotional, right? It, it really is. It's about you know somebody who died in the first movie. Who there's a lot of pain in Maverick because of what happened. Yeah, and then he has to deal with his son. And that's the core of, of the movies we try to make, especially Top Gun. Yeah. I think, Chris, it kind of surprised people how emotional the film was. Do you, do you feel that? Uh, I'm, I'm surprised that people found it as emotional. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we're, we were delighted really more than anything else. It was the, that was job one. It was really the objective. And, and it's, it's an earnest movie. It's a sincere movie. And those are dangerous playthings. <laughs> it can really go either way, and the audience can either embrace that fully, or they can just reject it. And that was that was, and we were sitting on this movie for so long. So to 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 have this sitting on the shelf and knowing what we felt it was, and not knowing how an audience would accept it, it was a little bit like living with a ticking time bomb for all that time, uh, and and just wanting wanting to wanting an audience to see it and and see if they felt what we thought. So yeah. we were just, we were just very grateful that people responded to it the way that they did. I, I think um, at its purest form, when, when someone chooses to buy a movie ticket and go into a cinema, they're, they're buying an emotional experience. It's that simple. Depending on the kind of movie that you're buying a ticket for, you, you, you're literally buying a ticket to put yourself in the position of, of having an emotional experience. And so we, we, we want the film to, we, we, when we're creating the movie and we're, we're building it and we're sculpting it and crafting it, we, we literally want you to, to, to get lost in the first two minutes and just go on a, on a seamless emotional journey from the beginning to the end. And it's very, very hard to do, but it's ultimately what you're aiming for every day is, is so that nothing bumps you out at all throughout yeah. the whole film. You're just, you're just with Maverick and you're in his point of view and you're just feeling everything from the beginning of the movie to the end. Um, so it's awesome that it's worked emotionally, but that is, it's, it's literally this at the simplest core of what you do as a storyteller is that it's just what kind of emotion am I creating moment to moment through the film? You yeah. Know? In terms of those big emotional beats, Jerry, one of the, the biggest is the relationship between uh, Maverick and Ice. You were on set that day. How was that? Well, first of all, Tom said, I'm not making this movie unless Val's in it. So right. let's start there. Because of the relationship with the first movie, the respect he has for Val. And he wanted him to be a part of this. And it was very important. And it was very emotional. It was very emotional for all of us to be back with Val. Seeing Val and Tom together, just rehearsing and working together. And and the amount of effort Joe and Eddie put in cutting it and McHugh did in writing it and, and rewriting it and working with Tom and Val. It, it was a real labor of love between these two actors. And... And really, Chris really nailed it. He really got to the core of it and made it a, just a beautiful scene. And, you know, what's so interesting is Tom, 
his performance is so understated and so good in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, he right. really, he, he never kind of goes out there and he's just a brilliant actor. And it, when, when an actor makes you believe the character as he made you believe Maverick, it's a real art. And he's, he's such an artist uh, to pull this together and pull this movie together after 35 years. Uh, that he played the characters, an iconic, iconic character for, for his career. He'd go in the parts of Africa and kids would run up to him and call him Maverick. So <laughs> that's, the, that's the extent of, of how that, the first movie went around the world. And the same with this movie. The grosses for this movie are bigger foreign than they are domestic in the United States. So this movie entertained audiences around the world. What is the global box office now? It's one four seven seven something like that. Very close a to that. Billion. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that's without a third of the. World. That's with a B. <laughs> yeah. Not that I'm counting. I'm not paying any attention. I just heard. And Chris, with, with that scene with ice, what were you? What were you think? How did you think through it? What did you think it needed to do? We talked about that extensively. Um, there had been earlier versions of it when I came on that took for granted the the love people had for this movie and the love people had for this for these characters and um uh someone said well you know these guys have been friends for 30 years and i said no they were friends for 30 seconds 30 years ago <laughs> the whole movie they didn't like each other they reconciled at the very end of the film you you can't take that relationship for granted in fact you you can't assume that anyone sitting in the audience has seen top gun even if they watched it in the car on the way to the theater yeah <laughs> you don't want to ask the audience to leave the movie remember another movie and then come back so yeah. we have to we have to reintroduce this character we have to create this entire friendship so the the harder part about that scene on the writing side of it was the engineering of of introducing Iceman as a character in every scene before you meet him. Yeah. And if you if you watch the movie through that prism, you feel him as a presence long before he ever appears on screen. Then once you're once you're there, that scene um is uh the the real testament to that scene working. I'd love to take all the credit in the world for it. It's the vulnerability of the two actors in that scene, yeah. both of whom are confronting things in their real life that that they're bringing and and things we think we know about them and and bringing that into the scene uh and and having very serious conversations about that. Those are very difficult conversations to have uh and they and they had them they embraced them it's in, It's incredibly brave what Val is is doing in that scene yeah. and 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 incorporating that into the story that's that's and you couldn't you couldn't have a scene like that if Val wasn't willing to to confront and embrace that aspect of his life and and put it out there it's extremely it's an extremely vulnerable and very very brave performance and and watching the two of them watching the two of them confront that was extremely moving. Absolutely. And Eddie, what was your thought about, what was the philosophy about sort of going back to the old movie? Because the, the, the opening scene, you recreate, yeah. you yeah. recreate the opening scene of yeah. the original. How did you feel about, how was that? How did well, you feel about yeah, that? I, I, you, some of you may have heard me say this before, but it's, it's, 
most of the audience, it, I mean, probably nearly everybody sitting thinks this is a terrible idea. Why are you making a sequel to Top Gun? <laughs> you, you're going to fail. You know, we've all yeah. seen sequels to, to movies and been desperately disappointed by them. Yeah. And uh, what Tom Tom said, look, we have to start the movie the same way as we did with the first one. Start it with Danger Zone, and and I I remember. You know, I was 14 when I saw the first movie and I remember I saw it six times in the theater in 1986. And I remember having, uh, you know, an instant emotional reaction to Tony Scott's. I mean, the, the cinematography is astonishingly good in the first movie. Yeah. And, and we, we discovered how hard it was to kind of, kind of <laughs> recreate that feel because, because what he did, the textures of those images are unbelievable. The filters that he used. Anyway, they they the time of day the time of day you yeah have, you have about four minutes of available life. yeah yeah I mean it's crazy but but the thing is we wanted what we what we were trying to do is within two minutes we want everyone to uncross their arms and go oh this is Top Gun they haven't screwed it up they 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 care about the film they care about me you know they care about not ruining what I my memories and I'm just feeling like I'm back in that world and. You know the the sounds of the While simultaneously feeling. Please don't blow it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> also, I really believe some of the a lot of the suspense in the third act is not just the narrative, but it's also the audience going, "You're going to blow this." Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's, it's working. It's working. It's working. I'm going to be so let down when it's not working. Yeah, yeah. But we really wanted to. Um, we we wanted that. That was what we we set out to do is to make, make you relax into the movie within two minutes and then, and then, you know, change the channel quite abruptly when we meet Maverick in the hangar and go on the journey with yeah. the dark star and then go back to Top Gun. And, but just to give you a sense of the editorial challenge for that, just that two minutes at the opening, it was around 24 hours of dailies of footage filmed um, on the USS George Washington and the USS Theodore Roosevelt in to, one day. No, no, no. It was. Oh, that it was, wasn't for the. No, so it was about four four days of filming on the George Washington, okay. and then three days on the Theodore Roosevelt. About eight months later, yeah. and about twenty four hours of footage in total. So, so I am feeling the weight of everyone in the world who who doesn't want this film to suck. And I'm going through and I'm I'm watching every frame and I'm going, this has got to be awesome. Every shot has to be awesome. You know, yeah. and so I and and the trick to when you're editing these things is to being thorough and breaking down the footage and as you react to it, like marking how good you think it is out of 10. So that all the good shots are kind of, you know, marked. So I have layers on the timeline where the top ones are the best shots and then the shots down below are kind of not as good. Yeah. But the thing about that is when Tom or McHugh or Joe Kaczynski or Jerry, when they walk into the cutting room and they go, what are the alternatives for this three seconds of the movie? I'll go, well, I've got eight other options stacked up underneath. And this is, this is the reason I chose this one because the jet's doing this, or there's a bit of, you know, there's a light glinting off the cockpit or the sun's just right or whatever, but I've got other ones and you might prefer one of those. So, but then Tom knows I've been super thorough and I, you know, I, I've really done my homework and that, you know, I really can try and be confident about the fact that this is the best three seconds to go in the movie at this point. Yeah. And Joey, what, what was your thought about callbacks? I was amazed that this film doesn't include the line, I feel the need somewhere. What, what, what was your kind of your thinking about how much you should lean into the, the old film? 
Well, you know, it's it's a combination of our team and and trying to get it right. It's it's Tom and Joe and Chris and and Eddie and and to to kind of you take all their thoughts yeah. and all the things that they want to do and it just comes out right because they're so talented. You, yeah. you surround yourself with talented people, you get Top Gun. That's really <laughs> what it is. And that's what's so great about this movie is the people that made it, the people who acted in it, uh, the people who distribute it. It's, it's enormous amount of talent to get this kind of movie to play the way it's playing around the world and to move people emotionally. And what's interesting about this film, a lot of the people I've talked to they haven't just seen it once. They go back and see it again. It's a m- kind of movie and an experience you want to feel all over again. And that's the beauty of cinema when you when you get it to an, where an audience really loves it. And this is a movie that brought back an older audience to the cinema. The majority of the people that we talked to that are over 40 said, I haven't been to a, to a movie in two years. And this is the, and they love it. And, it. and it shows you if we do our jobs right. We can really entertain an audience in the right way. And one thing it brought back is kind of practical filmmaking as well, didn't it? With the, the aerial sequences, Chris, I, I read that you flew with the Blue Angels, who's like the the equivalent of the Red Arrows here. How was that? Did you vomit? Um, uh, I didn't vomit once. uh as as i said we're eddie was talking about the um uh eddie was recounting earlier about the pot that the actors flying in the plane and and you know all of the practical stuff that they were doing and how they would they 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 would there was no one there to direct them in yeah. the cockpit, they had to operate the camera. They had to do their own hair and makeup. They had to, uh, they have to do their own eyebrow acting because they, there's a mask on. You only have like a third of your face to work with, and they would just send them up with instructions, and then they would come back. They'd review it and say not good enough, and go back and do it again. I went up with the Blue Angels for one hour. I did not go up with the Blue Angels for two hours. (laughs) I would not go up with the Blue Angels again by choice. And it was amazing. It was an incredible experience. I've never been sicker so quickly. Uh, It's extremely physically, very physically punishing. And what it did, what that informed in the storytelling is everything you see in here is the physical exertion that goes into it. And uh, you cannot simulate that and it really is uh to give you to give you an idea what with six and a half g's you're essentially or in this case seven and a half sometimes eight g's you're talking about eight times the weight of gravity we're all at one g right now so if you weigh 100 pounds when you get into that plane and the plane does seven g's you weigh 700 pounds if you're foolish like i was and looking down at your iphone when the plane takes off like that your head which might weigh i don't know 10 pounds weighs 60 pounds (laughs) and your head just goes like that it goes down between your knees and you can't get back up again um when you're when the plane inverts and you're doing six and a half g's all of the blood that would normally just be circulating normally throughout your body, all of it wants to go down to your feet. You have to do something called a hick maneuver, which 
is essentially you're forcing all of the blood back up into your head so you don't black out. But you have to remember to keep breathing while you're doing that, because if you don't keep breathing while you do it, you'll you'll do other things in your suit that you don't want to do. <laughs> um, and uh, and you have to you have to be warned that it's happening because you're not in control of the plane, so you have to take a deep breath before you do it. There's all of that that goes into it, and not many of you will ever go to work in the morning and have an ejector seat drill. Uh, as you, part you of it. your job description, you do it which is, yeah, oh, yeah, it's just yeah, really yeah, weird yeah. when the guy <laughs> is telling you, and then look, if anything goes wrong and it won't, <laughs> but if anything goes wrong, you're going to pull this handle and it's going to blow the canopy off. And don't worry if I go out, you'll go out with me. It's terrifying. Like, and, and that's what they're dealing with. Yeah. Every day, uh, it, it was, it, it was an, it was a very extreme, uh, it was just an extreme form of filmmaking, um, and I, and I admire all of them for doing it because, as Eddie will tell you, there was, for every minute of screen time that you're seeing with one of those actors, it represented weeks, if not months, of yeah. Of so time I, I'm going to ask Eddie that question, but guys, after that question, it's over to you. So if you, if the mic people want to get ready and. Uh, we'll have your questions. So, Eddie, it's is it 814 hours of? Uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's that three it. times raw, more raw than footage. Three times more than Peter Jackson shot in Lord of the Rings. Is Not that... three times more. Oh. I mean, estimately about the same as all three Lord of the Rings movies. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, gen but they were that was film. So, so there's you know digital cameras. It's slightly easier, but still, it's a it's like four and a half million feet of film in old film count. It's, yeah. it's a, yeah, but there was one. There was one 24 hour oh, yeah. day. <laughs> There was this, a day in which there was 24 hours of footage. Yeah, 27 wow. cameras running on one day because they had four planes going up and three units filming on the ground. It was, it was that was a very, very overwhelming day. Uh, I think actually that was when I went to Jerry and I said, I don't think I can do this anymore because <laughs> I, I, I'm really, I'm getting quite overwhelmed. I was literally having fever dreams. All I would see is shots of Rooster and Hangman and Phoenix in my dreams because <laughs> all I would see is their faces and all this footage to go through. And, oh my God, I can't, you know, this has to be awesome. You know, it can't, it can't, there's so much expectation and it has to be awesome, you know. But yeah, it was the, the, you know, the real trick is being thorough, going through it all. Um, and also anytime you see a really great shot, but you're not quite sure where it's going to go in the movie, make sure it's like logged away somewhere. So yeah. when you're looking, when you're reviewing the scenes and, and you're like, what were the, all the other cool shots that we had? Because we started out with one story for the dogfight and it all everything gets changed and you recut it and it all becomes used in different ways. We, they filmed the inside of the action first. So all the close-ups of the pilots I had, and then about four months later, we did the exterior shots of the yeah. planes. So what we literally, what we did was we got model F-18s on wooden sticks and filmed them with our iPhone, <laughs> right? Doing, you know, we would, we would kind of go like this. And we would kind of move them through the air and film them and cut them in to kind of represent roughly what might, we might shoot later. That's amazing. Yeah. And with storyboards and bits of previews and stuff, but you, you've got to kind of start somewhere and it's never very good when you put it together. It, it's way too long and unfocused and there's tons and tons of stuff that they've tried out in the sky that, that might be good. So you put it all in cause you want to, you know, you want to have a version where it's kind of really fat and long and, you know, but then you slowly compress it down and distill it. And every line that the actors say in the air, we have refined 
and re-recorded and rewritten and re-recorded over and over to get the emotional content and the stresses on each syllable just right to give you the exact feeling and yeah. and to to make sure that you know the 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 emotional content of each moment is exactly right for what we need it to be to make it flow completely smoothly yeah. and for you to understand you know the relationships between everybody and the and the geography in the air between you know in the dogfight scenes which is really incredibly difficult actually um but but you just you just keep working at it until yeah it's just it was two years of work basically every day for two years to get That's it amazing. to get it done yeah yeah cool okay who's got a question um thanks a lot gentlemen for being here um the film has done incredible numbers surely uh there's a part of you somewhere that's jotting down some ideas for a follow-up to this <laughs> jerry look it took a 35 years to come up with this one i won't be around when <laughs> we get another one I will not be in an F-18 when I'm 80 <laughs> years old. Um, I, it, uh, I like to describe Tom Cruise as a train in front of which you must lay track. He's just constantly moving. And uh, it's, it, it was very, he's talked about this movie for a long, long time. Uh, I correct me if I'm wrong, Jerry. I think you and Don came to him immediately after the first movie to talk about a sequel. And, uh, and for Tom, it was always the same answer. It's the story has to be there. The story has to be right. So I, I would, I would never say never to any idea. I just know if there, if there was a great story to be told, if we, if we came up with something, I remember with edge of tomorrow, finishing that movie and being so glad I had finished that movie, uh, which was very challenging. And the experience of making it was much like the experience of the character in that movie. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and when it was over, Tom said he wanted to make a sequel. And I just thought, absolutely not a terrible <laughs> idea. And he just said one little kernel of an idea to me. And I said, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it put the hook in me. And I, so I think if somebody, if somebody came and said, you know, Look, this movie, as Eddie said, I I was I was among those cynics saying, "Really, you're gonna make a sequel to this movie? This is that's a tall order, and and you and the audience will just be waiting for the movie not to work." It was very, it was very very precarious idea. So, who knows? Do I have an idea today? I'm I'm busy with other things. Right? <laughs> okay, let's go there. Um, I just wanted to ask about the beach scene, which obviously was very, very popular and is a lovely callback to the beach volleyball scene in the first film. Obviously, very deliberately done <laughs> and very enjoyed by audiences. Was that just a sort of levity that you wanted to call back to the first film or what was the thought process there? Uh, when I came on board, that was an imperative. That was <laughs> It was happening. Uh, the, the concept of beach volleyball and – or beach football, rather – uh, I just remember that it was actually a scene involving. There was a great deal of exposition in the scene. It was it was being used as a means of telling a story. Um, and my advice to Joe was, if you put even a line of exposition in here, you'll be you'll be shooting this scene for weeks <laughs> instead of days. Uh, let's find a way to do it in a way that everybody can just have fun and we can capture that. Because this is they, they are those pilots really do 
they, they are a culture. They are, they, they're, they're a community unto themselves. They love each other and they, you feel that friendship. That's, you can't make that up. Um, so yes, that was a, but I, I, I remember that was a very, very important thing to, to touch upon in the movie, not to recreate, but to kind of create that spirit in the movie. Um, and I also remember being there on the day and I've never felt more out of shape in my life <laughs> than I did on that day. And what I loved about that was that being as out of shape as I was watching those actors, knowing that they were going to perform that scene in the weeks leading up to it, the fasting and the exercising. <laughs> and I would be in the hotel whenever they would come home at the end of the day and I'd be eating macaroni and cheese and be like, you guys want a beer? Like, what do you want to do? And 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 watching them do push-ups on the beach that morning, they were all so competitive with one another about who was going to be the fittest person on the beach. Then, of course, after they finished it, they thought the scene was over, and they all broke training. And then, of course, typical of making a movie with Tom Cruise, hey, we're going to go back and pick up a couple of extra shots. <laughs> and they were all devastated. <laughs> because, uh, but yeah, that was a. It was a lot of fun shooting it, and it was a lot of fun not being in it. <laughs> I think we've got time for a couple more questions. At the back, the gentleman at the back. Hi, um, this is specific for Jerry Bruckheimer. Something that I've always thought about for years. So, obviously, you've produced some legendary big blockbuster films, but there's something I always notice in your films that whenever you you make it, you always elevate an up and coming actor to sort of they become a sort of a superstar after from Eddie Murphy in Beverly Hills Cop. Obviously, Tom and Val in Top Gun, it, um, Crimson Tide, Denzel was a young actor opposite Gene Hatman. Obviously, Martin Lawrence and Will Smith, um, Kieran Knightley in Pirates of the Caribbean, and even obviously Glenn Powell and Miles Teller in the current. Now, is there like, because, and I, it's a pattern I've noticed and it always happens with you. Is it like a procedure you have or is it a certain um, creative um, confidence you have because you always seem to find really great talent and they always go up to the next level? Uh, or is it uh, what's your uh, what's your secret Jerry what's, what's your secret, secret? That's what, that's <laughs> if you can tell I don't know if there's a secret I bottle it and sell it but there is no <laughs> there's no secret when you work on as many movies as we've all worked on and see as many actors as we see an actor will walk in the room and will light up the room it's just amazing that there's something that their work has led us led them to us and that's what we got with Miles and Glenn. And, and it's, it's, it's something that is indescribable, but it just happens. When we were making Days of Thunder, Robert Duvall wasn't available for the read-throughs. And Robert Town was one of the writers on it. And we, kept, we had other actors playing Robert Duvall to, for scenes testing the actors playing against him. And I kept saying to Robert, this scene doesn't work. His dialogue isn't good. There's something wrong with this. And then Robert Duvall came in and read the same exact lines and every line was brilliant. So it just shows you what an actor can do with the script that he's given. Jerry is extremely generous and extremely uh, humble. All of the movies you listed are Jerry Bruckheimer movies. You could have taken those actors and you could have put them in other films. They still would have had it. They still would have had been extremely talented. They would not have been in Crimson Tide and Days of Thunder and Pirates of the Caribbean and all of those movies you listed, which all have one thing in common, which is 
Jerry Bruckheimer. Um, and he's he not only has an ex, an extraordinary eye for talent, but he has an extraordinary sense of how to serve talent, uh, and that's that's a very rare thing too. It's been a it's been an incredible experience working with Jerry, watching Jerry, learning from Jerry, and uh, and obviously growing up watching Jerry's movies. Uh, and so I I. I got to call Jerry out on that. It's Jerry. It's Jerry. That okay. is the secret ingredient. That's what he, he doesn't fit in a bottle. <laughs> we have a question in the back there, right at the back. We've seen this film uh, three times now. This is the third time we're watching it. And every Greatest time review for the film ever. Thank you. <laughs> There's no better review than a second viewing. Thing. Um, I just, I've seen it. And I've noticed that it's not an overly wordy film. It's not over amounts of dialogue and stuff. And But there's the same sort of level of action. I just want to know how you manage to strike that balance between the two, because it seems to be perfect in the way that your every single line is meaning something and you have that exact same level of action. And it, I just don't know how you get it right. Eddie, do you want to tell one? Oh, that is tricky. Okay. Uh, Careful, the writer is sitting Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Um, I, well, I, Chris will say you start off with a lot more than you need. You know, we do film a lot of additional pieces of dialogue. And, but Chris will say, you know, um, it's, it's, it's when you're trying to create an emotional experience, dialogue just kind of gets in the way of that, you know, and behavior is what is emotional. <laughs> Right. And so you're trying to create the the characters and the emotions between the characters without the minimum amount of dialogue, uh, almost always, because c cinema is a is a visual storytelling discipline, you know, and pure cinema requires no dialogue at all. Like you should be able to watch a scene with the sound off and feel the emotion just by watching how the camera moves and what the actors are doing and how the scene's blocked and, you know, what lenses and the light, I mean, all that stuff. And um, Chris is a genius at this. I mean, he really, he, when we're, when we're editing, especially on Mission Impossible, you're, you're trying to give the audience just enough to understand the stakes so that they can enjoy the third act, especially here, because you're being educated all through the second act of the movie. And we don't want you to feel like you're being educated. But, you know, I, I've said this before, when when <laughs> when Maverick shows up and he says, I'm setting the timer at two minutes, 15 seconds, almost all of you would have gone, whoa, two minutes, 15. That is fast. <laughs> no one can do it that quickly because we've educated you about, you know, how fast the planes have to go, how low they have to go, how difficult it is. They've all failed to do it. Normally it's 2.30 and he's cutting 15 seconds off. And then you're watching him demonstrate that it's, it's possible to do the mission, right? Which none of them have ever seen before. And they don't believe, and even Cyclone doesn't believe it, you know, and, and reluctantly at the end, you see him thinking, damn Maverick, he's, he's proved that he was right, but there's no dialogue in that at all, because we've taught you about this and you can just really, you, the sense of awe that we create with the pilot, those shots of when, when the pilots are reacting and you've got Cyclone there kind of angry and you've got Warlock. I love I love Warlock in the back, like clenching his fist going, go on Maverick. It's so <laughs> satisfying. And uh, Chris is the best at that. And, and if, if we don't have enough, we put an extra line in 
you know, just the right amount of story just to explain like a time, a piece of time or a piece of geography or something that, that you need to know exactly at that point to just connect the dots. So you're feeling the correct stakes and the correct suspense and the, you know, and it, it amazes me actually how much people do get. Cause I, I, I often, when I'm, when I'm editing a scene, I'm quite often thinking, I don't think this is landing quite as much as I want it to. And Chris is like, no, no, this is, you've got too much in here. Take some more out. And it still works. And he's always right. Um, but it, you know, and he is, and we, and we, we work on it for a long, long time. And we go over the scenes just hundreds of times. I have seen every scene in this film hundreds of times because we stress test every frame of the movie to make sure it's exactly right for the the piece of emotion and story that you need. And um, it never is right the first time either, like anything creative. It starts off and it's a bit lumpy and uneven and too long and and it just takes a, a, anything creative, you know, takes a long time and and you know, care and attention and craft and detail to really kind of, you know, dial it in to make sure it works. So, and, and there's a process, you know, you know, like creative people know that it doesn't, it's never great first time and you have to really work at something and not give up on it until it's, it's where you see it, you know, now where you're like, okay, it's just exactly perfect, you know, or you hope it is. But the fact that you felt that is, you know, is so exciting to hear, you know, a, a movie in which half of your cast for half of the movie have their mouths covered <laughs> ensures that your dialogue will be perfect eventually. <laughs> uh, so we were in the middle of going through story meetings and talking about all of the many complicated things that were going into the structure of that. And anytime we got to an aerial sequence, I said, are they all wearing masks in this scene? Move on. Just <laughs> skip this scene. This is not important. We'll figure this. This is what the scene needs to be about, and we'll figure it out later. Uh, the other thing that's really critical about dialogue is where you prioritize it. There is a there is a belief that I do not describe to, that I do not subscribe to that great dialogue is great writing. Great dialogue is great dialogue. It's not necessarily great writing. It's not necessarily great storytelling. Uh, it's it, it's dialogue that calls attention to the writing, and what I what's most important for me is that dialogue is is indistinguishable from score. It's something you are. Score is something you are hearing. It's not something you are actively listening to. It's something that you're experiencing when you're watching the movie. You're not actually paying attention to the notes. They're creating an emotion. And what I'm trying to do with dialogue is create dialogue where you're hearing the important parts and the rest of the the rest of what's happening you may catch on another viewing you may you may be listening but I don't expect you to I don't I don't trust you to um <laughs> because I don't I am the most inattentive ADD person in the world so when I'm having a conversation with somebody and they mention my mother, I leave the conversation and think about my mom for a minute and picture my mom and might have to remember, oh, I got to call my mom. That's right. I've got to haven't talked to mom in a while or, you know, oh, you, you know, this thing I got to get mom for Christmas. And then I'm back in the conversation. You're doing that while you're watching the movie. You're you're I'm trusting that you're drifting in and out of the narrative. That doesn't mean you've left. It just means that you're you're being allowed to think freely. It's as important who's listening to dialogue as who's saying it. So Eddie and I will obsess about 
when we cut to a character, on what word do we cut back so that you're getting keywords and you're hearing everything. But ideally, when you watch a movie like this, it's an experience. It's not anything you have to actively participate in. You just you just get to feel it. That comes from a uh, a, a, a applying that philosophy, that dialogue and score are kind of the same thing. And there are times in the movie where I will have written lines and Tom will say, do we really re- need this line? And I'll say, absolutely not. That's why it's there. It's actually there to tell the audience to pay attention. It's going da 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 because the <laughs> next line is important. And if and if you don't preface that line, people will miss it. I'm giving you kind of noise to listen to so that there's not air in the scene. All of that is carefully considered. All of that is embroidered into it. And Eddie and Tom and, and I will prosecute every single word down to the syllable, down to the syntax, because in case you're listening, we don't want to send you down the wrong path or have you asking the wrong question. We're actually counting on you to kind of to kind of skip over it and 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 not listen. That's so that's where you're feeling that balance. It is kind of a talky movie. I mean, there's huge dialogue scenes and you need to understand all of those words. The next thing about that is then it's working with Joe and it's framing. How the how the character is framed can make the determination on whether you're listening to them or not. That's why the bar scene is to me in this movie as complicated as any action scene <laughs> you'll see in the film. You're introducing nine major characters, some of whom are not in the movie. Um and 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 don't ever appear on screen in the film. Uh you're introducing decades of past experience with this character and all of these many things that the audience has to absorb and pay attention to and we're we're establishing all of that in a way that you don't actually have to take notes and do homework that is that that and that is is actually writing editing score uh source music composition of specific shots even the set design we we went over the bar we went over the blueprint and determined where Maverick would be sitting in the bar, where the other actors would be in his eyeline, uh, how the scene evolved, how many extras were in every moment of the scene, what time of day did the bar scene take place. There's not a single element in that scene that isn't exhaustively considered so that when you get there, if you happen to not be paying attention to what Maverick and Penny are saying, you're still feeling it. The best line that, that for, for me that's uttered in that bar is Jennifer Connolly saying, it always ends the same way with us, Pete. Let's not start this time. I didn't write that line. I wish I had. Jen Connolly did. I wrote a different line. Jen Connolly captured the essence of their relationship and in one instance improvised that line. We recut her entire relationship with Maverick based on that. We had a very different idea of what that was. So it's, it's, it, it's a, it's a big, uh, it's, 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 it's a very important that everybody understood that and that nobody adhered to it. And that, and that I was constantly on set telling Joe Kaczynski, take off your headphones. I'm saying this is the writer of the movie. 
Stop listening to what they're saying. Watch what they're saying. Just look at the way they interact with one another. D dialogue is bullshit. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm, there are writers in this room who will hate me for saying it. Uh, and the younger me would be outraged to hear that. Outraged to hear that. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a very important, simultaneously vital and completely overrated aspect of storytelling. Is that ultimately, there, the movie is emotional and not information. Information is the death of emotion. And. 90% of the people that will ever watch this movie are watching it in another language. They're reading it in subtitles and, uh, and, and the movie becomes more work for them. So I'm trying constantly to, to bury the dialogue behind the craft of all the other people that I'm working with. Amazing. What a lovely answer. There's a question in the middle there. Yeah. We've established that this film has, has been a huge success. And I think personally, it's been the, best movie uh, movie going experience of my life um so i i was i was fortunate enough to watch it um at chinese theater at an opening weekend and it was amazing like people were cheering all over the place um wow, that's awesome <laughs> yes it really was um so my question is um what do you think people should do as either filmmaker or just people in the industry or just even the audience should do to preserve that feeling like that special magic of movie going do you mean going to the cinema going yes. to see, see, seeing yeah. films in a theater yeah. Jerry, what do you think about? it's always about the storytelling it really is you, do you fall in love with these characters is is there a great theme is there a great plot it's 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 emotion it's all that all the the action and all that stuff is wonderful and you want to do it right but it's all about the emotion that these characters and this story that they're telling you. We're in the transportation business. We transport you from one place to another. And that's what <laughs> movies do. We want to take, at least this group, wants to take you away from your life for two hours and make you forget about everything and just enjoy what's on that screen and what you're feeling and what you feel like when you walk out. And that's the magic of, of Top Gun Maverick. It's you felt something when you walked out. You felt good. You felt good about the experience you just had. But Eddie, you, you can't watch Top Gun Maverick on your phone, can you? It's a big screen experience. Oh my goodness me. <laughs> well, yeah, I, 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 I mean, listen, I, I, I have, I have extraordinary memories of 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 loving movies when I was a kid. You know, didn't get to see the cinema, didn't go to the cinema very often, but I just remember how like getting lost in the movie on the big screen and loving that feeling of going to a different world and being in someone else's shoes and experiencing a different emotion and you know, like classic movies. You know, uh, E.T. was just a, I remember seeing that and Close Encounters and Temple of Doom and, uh, you know, things like that where I, I just, I remember where I was sitting in the cinema, literally, I can remember now exactly where I was sitting and the view I had of the screen and the magic of that. And I think, you know, it's so exciting to have played a part in reinvigorating the theatrical going, you know, the a great night at the movies after the pandemic and, and the, you are probably all aware of this, but the, the, everything was in about streaming in March, April, you know, literally. And, and there's been a course correction in the industry 
all the studios have moved back towards theatrical now because they realize that that the big screen experience and the the emotional resonance with the audience and and how you how you relate to a movie just is way more powerful on the big screen and it's just not the same on a TV at home. You, you all know that you're all here because you're all empire readers and you love cinema and it's the same, but it, it's given, it's so exciting for me to have been a small part of a movie, which may have like pushed the oil tanker of the industry back towards theatrical again, which we all want, you know, it breaks my heart that, that movie going might have kind of dis, I, I don't think it ever will disappear because it's such a, you know, uh, experiencing a story with strangers in a dark room and being and having that communal atmosphere of <laughs> excitement and laughter and emotion and crying and you know all holding your breath and you know when when Maverick walks in to see Iceman, everyone's just like, oh, you know, you're holding your breath, going and that scene it takes when he its jumps time. out of the window. Yeah, works every time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it's it's um, uh, it's just the best. You know, and like you say, that that going to the Chinese theatre and having that experience, that's just the best feeling. It's so cool. If you want a big screen experience, sit closer to the TV. <laughs> Hold the phone closer to your face. What you what they talk about with the big screen experience is what's on the other side. It's the audience. It's watching a movie, a communal experience. Is is incredibly it undeniably different from watching a film alone. Watching a film with 500 strangers is, is, is a, is to me and why I do it a, a reminder that on some fundamental level, we are all the same and we all just want to get along. We all just want to get through this life having lived and loved and had, and, and had shared experiences with, with those people we care about and watching a movie in a theater is an extension of that, of that communal tribal primal elemental feeling of community. It is a campfire story. Tom and I had, and on every movie we've ever worked on, we go to every test screening. When we take movies around the world, we make it our, we make a point of staying and watching that movie with audiences in different countries around the world for the, to, to see what, what works, what translates, what communicates most universally and to, and to see moments like that, to see moments where like taught when he sees Amelia after having jumped out of the window and the reaction that that gets every time, uh, is is a is a profoundly human one that experience nearly vanished it was so precariously close to extinction uh because the there there was this belief that uh that a people don't they don't they don't want to go out and have that experience but also that a generation of people watching films has a short attention span because they're all into their phones and their iPads and their devices. I bet the other way. The truth of the matter is that somebody in their 20s, somebody in their teens is actually capable of playing a video game that lasts 15 or 20 hours. They're capable of binge watching an entire season of television 
before lunch. <laughs> That's not short attention span. That's actually an infinite attention span. It is a matter of engagement. It's a matter of, of how focused the filmmakers are on treating the audience as the reason why you make films instead of something that must be tolerated while you're going about your career as a filmmaker. We do it because of you. Tom Cruise and Jerry Bruckheimer do it because of you. We're all sitting in the editing room all the time, understanding that our job is to entertain and engage and move, more important than anything, move you. It, we take the term moving picture to mean something completely different. That's, that's what we're here for. And that's what the experience is about. If you move them, they will come. Tom's career is not an accident. Jerry's career is not an accident. And the movies that they have made, the people they have entertained, and by extension, the money that they have made, all of that is not an accident. They understand that it's about emotion. It's not about awards. It's not about reviews. It's, it's not, it's, and it's not, it's not about the recognition that it brings them. That all comes by extension. It's about the audience. And, and if you, if you serve the audience, you'll be delivered. That's amazing. Right, guys, I, I've been told, I've been told that this is the last question and I've said yes to two people asking questions. So can we hustle, jump yes. in there and then get the bike. Thank you guys. Uh, amazing work. Just following on from what you said, obviously the films are the way they are because you're putting so much of your life's work into it. And when you're doing films like Jerry back to back to back and you've got families and you've got children, sorry to ask it, but how do you balance that when you're so committed to what you do and is it possible to balance it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Linda Bruckheimer and Charlotte Hamilton sitting in the front row. <laughs> Eddie, we were talking about that. Eddie, do you want to take yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. You ha you have to have support. You you have to. We are circus people, and and you, if you're if you're not supported, you won't you won't survive. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, Charlotte, my wife, has supported me. Uh, you know, when when we met, she she knew that that you know. She was like, "All you talk about is films." I was like, "Yeah, but but that's what I love to do, darling." Well, yeah. it's like it's like you know that's it. And she actually likes being married to somebody who loves their job and comes home and is excited and enthused. And you know, my kids get to see somebody who loves going to work and works with really interesting people, and they understand that that being creative is possible as a job because it's not really a proper job, right? And and certainly my parents don't think so. But you know, the the fact that. Honestly, the fact that you can you you know I you can make a living being creative, you set your sights very very high, and you know I I I I strive, and all you have control over in your life is how hard you know how how you apply yourself to your job day to day. That's all you have control over. So I always go to work being very grateful and thinking, how can I be the best person I can be? How can how hard can I work? And um, you, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily going to. I was having to, we were going to move to LA for a year and take my kids out of school, put them in. And Charlotte said, no, we should do this. And, and completely supported me. And we uprooted the whole family, moved to LA. Jerry was obviously very, very supportive of that. Um, it does require a lot of support 
you know, here's five things not to forget. All right. Don't forget your wedding anniversary. <laughs> don't, don't forget Valentine's Day. Don't forget uh, Christmas. Don't forget birthday. And if you if you're if you're married to a mother, don't forget Mother's Day. Right. So do not, do not Mother's five Day. things not to forget. And, and I've forgot all of them once. And, 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 you know, I've paid the price. But that would be that would be my top tip is to remember those five things um, and, and just say thank you. Be You know, don't take anything for granted and, you know, have a lot of gratitude and um yeah it's it's it, it's you know it's a vocation but it, it comes with incredible adventure you know like I, we do travel around that we're like i was in south africa earlier in this year working with chris and, and we, you're going we, back and we're going back we've been we've been to new zealand I, I went to seven different naval bases you know my my listen it, there's a huge privilege that comes with this my 16 year old daughter came to visit me in south africa and tom cruise said hey iona do you want to have a flying lesson in my helicopter i'm not joking <laughs> so so tom's pilot took her up and allowed her to fly a helicopter for six minutes and she's 16 years old <laughs> I mean, it's nuts. The kind of, I mean, that, that, that is an extraordinary, different kind of experience for a child. So it does come with benefits, but you know, this morning I was up at eight, me and Chris were working at 8am on a Sunday and my kids, you know, they, they get it. They come up and they say, hi, they wave to Chris and, but they know that, that this is, you know, this is how hard you've got to work to, to, you know, work at this level. And they know that I've, I've been trying to do it for 20, you know, I've 20 years of really, really hard work every day to try and get up to this level. So they do understand. Um, but it's not, you know, it, it's a challenge, you know, I'll be, you know, Charlotte and I've had tough, difficult times as well, but you, you, you kind of work through it and learn from the experience and, you know, thank you, Charlotte. Yeah. Thank you, Charlotte. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, thank but it is not, really. it's not, it is not easy, but you know, you, um, it helps, you know, marrying somebody who, who understands your passion and, you know, is supportive in that, you know, you cannot believe the superhuman support and, and tolerance. We, we were cutting mission impossible. Uh, it was the only time we had a break to do so while we were shooting mission seven and mission eight. And the only way to, and, and it, it, the only way to, to create any kind of normalcy out of that is I suggested, uh, editing in Maine so that I could be closer to my family who are primarily in the States. Now my daughters are grown and they're going to school on the East coast. Uh, and Eddie quite graciously with the support of his family, they all moved to Maine with, with us, with me and my wife. And we all lived in a house together in Maine for five weeks. Um, on a tiny little Island with good internet and amazing lobster rolls. And, <laughs> And that was kind of, and we had this stolen little time and then it was, and then it was back to work. You, you can't, it, it is, you don't get movies like this without yeah. all of the people involved working all of the time, endlessly led by Jerry, led by Tom, who've been doing it, uh, longer and better than anybody. And, uh, and and with their value valuing that hard work and providing that kind of support um it's it ain't a part-time job it's it's not a thing with summers off it's a to to make movies yeah. like this it's a lifetime commitment yeah, you can't plan any holidays ever which is the no. biggest it's i mean my poor wife it's so tough yeah she's the like, only well, thing what are we doing next change. summer and i'm like yeah <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, any thoughts on work-life balance? What's yeah, any tip, Jerry? Jerry? Any any wisdom about getting perfect work-life balance? 
Well, I think it's, again, it's your partner that really has to understand your passion and what you love. And I'm very fortunate that Linda kind of goes along with me and <laughs> kind of knows my passion. And she also has a part of her life that she loves doing. She's a writer and a photographer. So it gives her time to do the things that she loves besides raising our daughters. So, you know, it's a very tight-knit family. And the fact that she comes with me and I, when our daughter was young, she came with us on location and really enjoyed it. It's an experience for kids to travel and, and go to different places and see different things and experience things. And the same thing with my wife. She's, she loves to go on location and travel parts of the world that she'll never get a chance to go. Uh, on her own or never think of going to those places to begin with. <laughs> so it's uh, it's wonderful to have a partner that uh, understands your passion and has a passion herself for what she loves doing. Cool. Okay, last question. The gentleman in the George Thank Lucas you. shirt. Yeah. Great question, yeah. yeah. Great question. <laughs> Hi, thanks. Um, Fifth time for me, so thank you. Uh, <laughs> hey! any, any, any advance on fifth? Anyone that's in my you dinner. Yeah, fifth is is winning. I I just want to say I feel slightly uh, inappropriate asking this because it's neither about the words nor the pictures. But you, Chris, brought up the subject of the music, the score, uh, which I effing love. And it's got you've got your three credited composers, and I just wondered if you're also you know intensely in oh oh sorry four, Uh, but you know you're also intensely involved in every aspect of the film. I just wondered if if you could speak a little bit about the music and, and you know, how it was crafted, how you all, you know, work together, putting it together and, and who did what, and, you know, just talk about the music basically. Uh, um, so the, my, probably my most cherished Top Gun memory of many, many, many Top Gun memories was here in London at Hans Zimmer studio with Eddie, Tom, Jerry, I think Joe was, Joe was, with us. was, yep, Joe was there. And Hans Zimmer presented to us for the first time, hold my hand, the, the, the demo recorded by Lady Gaga, who, uh, who five minutes prior had not been a concept in the world of Top Gun. Hans had brought in this idea. And when the song was over, uh, and believe me, there were many spirited conversations about all the music in the movie, what the music would go, would would be. Where, was there going to be a pop song in the film? There was talk about that all the time, constantly, kind of you know that that it was an important part of what makes Top Gun Top Gun. And Tom turned to Eddie and he said, "What do you think, Eddie?" And Eddie was sitting on the floor in front of the speakers, like we were in. You know, like a kid's bedroom <laughs> when you were when you were 15 years old. He said, "What do you think, Eddie?" And Eddie said, "I'm just trying to focus and remember every second of this because 20 years from now, we're all going to be talking about the first time we heard this song." That Harold Faltermeyer is, you know, you hear you hear so much of Harold Faltermeyer's original score brought into it. And what then Harold did with with elements of of his score that Hans Zimmer, uh, what Hans does with with his style, which you can if you if you listen to Hans, you can hear Hans. If you listen to Harold, you can hear Harold. If you listen to Hold My Hand, you can hear Hans and Harold and Lorne Balfe all taking her chords 
and and embroidering them into a score. Uh, and Lorne, who is credited as the producer on the score, is uh, this this other amazing entity, and Cecile Tornasek, who is Lorne's music editor, and a very a very unsung and incredibly brilliant. Uh, uh, editor who takes the work of all of these people and and weaves it into the tapestry that it is. Take that now and add COVID. An orchestra can't perform together. All the music you're listening to is performed by live musicians who are performing in their homes, isolated throughout the pandemic, some of whom thought they would never work again, some of whom hadn't worked in a year and were and we're really struggling. Um, I actually get emotional talking about it. A lot of the emotion that you're hearing in the score is is emotion reflected by the lives of the people that were struggling to make this movie under those conditions. There were days when I was in an apartment in uh, one part of London. Lauren was in his home. Eddie was in his home. Cecile was in Paris. And... Uh, and elements of the score were being worked at over Evercast, over the internet, um, Hans, with Hans Zimmer in Los Angeles uh, at the at the height of the pandemic. At at one time or another, everybody was affected by that pandemic uh, in ways that threatened to shut the entire movie down. It is a miracle uh, that that the that the score ever came together and it's uh uh and it's a it's a it's a testament to all the people working on that film that it that it did it's and it's hard to say who did what um because uh, gaga's melodies are th that one melody which then everyone embraced and and took and incorporated into the score and made thematic um really it, it permeated so much then on top of that ryan tedder uh who, who one republic recorded uh uh i worried about it the conversation that we had with ryan tedder when we were trying to find the music to go with the volleyball scene and i cannot tell you how <laughs> many iterations of songs that were that were experimented with and we got on the phone with ryan tedder and we were explaining to him look we want this there's so much going on in the movie there's so much pressure occurring to maverick we just want a we just want one element to the scene to just say i've just i'm not worried about it and ryan goes i got it and he came back the next day with that song <laughs> uh so the, the the unbelievable talent that that when Ed, Edgar Wright just recently gave an interview where Edgar Wright chose one of the songs in the bar, we went to T Bone Burnett, we went to all of these people who who understood music and who were not who were not part of the movie so that they could react to it emotionally. Uh, it's it's the work of so many people and and the work of so little ego. It wasn't about any one person being the person who scored the movie. It was everybody just loving the film and loving working together and working through what was a really, really challenging experience that when you look at it from orbit and Tom and I talk about this all the time, there are no obstacles. There are only creative opportunities <laughs> and disaster is an opportunity to excel. You, you take a setback and you make it your own. Eddie and I were in Venice 
in February of 2020, two days away from principal photography on Mission Impossible. I did not know what I was shooting on the first day. I knew the second day. I didn't know the first day. I was in a terrible panic, and Venice was evacuated. And it was ground zero of the pandemic, something that we thought would be weeks that obviously turned into what it did. And as the city was being evacuated and the hotel we were in was devoid of people, I was able to call Eddie and say, I'm coming up to your room, fire up Top Gun. <laughs> and we were able to focus on on a movie that we that we weren't really ready to to let go of that we were editing until the final mix of the movie uh the pandemic for for everything that it did to to it, it that was devastating and we we all lost people we cared about during that um it in a weird way saved this movie in a weird way it it, it contributed to what you're feeling when you make this movie um i'm so i'm glad you asked the question because we, we who did what Everybody did everything. And George, do you want to end on sort of some thoughts on your Top Gun adventure? How, how well, I, I, I want to add a little story that Chris and Eddie don't know about Lady Gaga and the song. Uh, Eddie told me that that McHugh thinks that songs should only be played on a jukebox in a movie. So he scared the living <laughs> hell out of me because I'd heard the Gaga song. And I said, oh, my God, we're going to have to present it to, to somebody who really doesn't want a song in a movie. And I love this. I thought it was great. So I sent it to Hans. And Hans took started playing with the melody. And he said, well, let me invite everybody over. So he invited Eddie and Tom and McHugh to the studio. And it kind of was a, a scary moment for me. When it was silence in the room, <laughs> and nobody said a word, and he spoke up. And then, to my joy and delight, the cue said, "That's really good." <laughs> it's it awesome. Was, it yeah. was. It was like it was astonishing. It was like hearing a slam dunk. You know, you hear That's that. Hilarious. Song, I mean, her voice. Her voice is the most extraordinary instrument. It's. I, 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 you know, and you hear the da 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 da, and we yeah. use it when when Maverick, you know, and Rooster crash land on the deck at the end, and they're all celebrating, and it's used for the sailing, and it's used, and and it just became the heart of the the heart of the movie. That chord progression, oh my goodness me, it was an enormous relief to everybody. In and you, you, know, I, I mean, listen, Jerry's had so many amazing, you know, you've had experience after experience where you've put songs in movies that have become iconic. Um, but to, to hear that for the first time, it was, it was just amazing. I love it. You know, uh, uh, my favorite, I would say in my entire career, my favorite sequence of, that I've had anything to do with is the second act to third act transition in this movie. It's that it's the score that takes you from the bar to the carrier to Charles Parnell, who is one of the most amazing and underrated actors in this movie, Warlock, saying, Captain Mitchell, you're where you belong. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. so good. Um <laughs> and I remember when we were when we were trying to figure out where does Talk to Me Goose go in the movie? And it was everywhere in the <laughs> and we and all the times we were taking it out and how it almost didn't make it into Dark Star because we'd forgotten it. We'd taken it out 
And then, because he actually said it much earlier in the movie and it didn't work. And, and we, but we did know he was going to say it there. We didn't know who was going to, who was going to speak to him, what was going to happen after that. And the day we, and the day I came to work and I said, oh my God, it's like, it's, I know what it is. It's Warlock. And this, this character who grew simply because Charles Parnell is so brilliant and he was a much smaller character in the, in the script, but it's that music. It's the, it's that score. And that is, that's Gaga's chord progression as, as interpreted by Hans, as, as, uh, interpreted by Lorne, as put together by Cecile as edited to Eddie, uh, is somebody we're not talking about when we're talking about the score. There is no better editor when it comes to conforming music to picture. If you look at the opera se sequence in Rogue Nation, it's Eddie. It's Eddie making, <laughs> it's, it's Eddie hammering an opera into the footage that, uh, it's, he's, he's so incredibly good at it. It's, it's, um, and I'm really amused by that because that's, that's, I, the, the fact that Jerry was scared of what I thought. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so here's an interesting little tidbit about dialogue. That scene between Penny and Maverick on the beach where he turns up in his dress whites, they had a chat originally in the script and we filmed a dialogue scene there and then we're in the process of editing it was like ah it's just it's you know information is the death of emotion so and you just feel everything you need to feel the music just their faces the emotion she she hugs him you push in on him his face the best score. scene i ever wrote yeah so, <laughs> some then, of my best work yeah and then you transition to the carrier and you've got that amazing score and that that's just an example of you know quite often how you you feel like a scene isn't working and the answer is actually let's remove all the dialogue and just let the moments play on on the actors faces and that's that was an example where it it you know it just it was it just worked perfectly you know and the score you know i love the score as well i love the fact that we incorporate danger zone into when yeah. they're stealing the f14 that's amazing that cue is yeah. so good i yeah. love it so much it just it just is so exciting and you you're just going oh my god maverick and rooster have stolen an f14 can this movie get any better this is so <laughs> awesome you know can this movie get so close to being ridiculous yeah yeah <laughs> that it's going to it is it going to let me down? Yeah, please don't yeah. let me down. I know it's yeah. so cool. It's no, it's 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 audacious, and I remember reading it and and the, that first draft. And, and actually, we were talking about that scene all the way back yeah. in 2011. That concept was there. Uh, it's the reason the reason why I believe that scene would work is because I was in a room full of really talented people who believe that scene would work, uh, and were determined to make that concept work and, and embrace it. it it like the tree that falls in a forest if there's nobody there to hear it if an audience didn't want to get that idea it wouldn't work and and truly the, the 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 reason why maverick works as well as it does is because of all of you it's because you all came to see the movie you came to see the movie together and you and you and you let the movie entertain you and so we're we're just really grateful for for all of you we're grateful for you to coming out and seeing this movie and and giving two hours of your life to it and and appreciating it the way you have so really thank you more than anybody thank you well, thank you that that's a that, that's a lovely note to end on it's time to turn and burn 
Um, uh, thank you so much to Phoebe for doing the mics. Thank you much. Thank you so much for the Soho House. Thank you so much to Jen and Jane at Paramount. Thank you. Thank you, you guys, for coming. And thank you for your brilliant questions. And thank you for your support of VIP. There's some great things coming up if you check your inboxes. And please join me in thanking Jerry Brookheimer, Eddie Hamilton, Chris McQuarrie. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. And that was our exclusive Top Gun Maverick Q&A with Jerry Bruckheimer, Eddie Hamilton and Christopher McQuarrie. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And there's more where that came from if you sign up for the Empire VIP Club. Many of you who listen to this on the Spoiler Special subscription channel will already be VIP Club members because Spoiler Special subscription is included in the membership. But there are many other things as well, including your subscription to Empire Magazine and, of course, a chance to be in the room, either in person or virtually at any of the incredible events we're going to put on this year. Events just like this one, or indeed the one-hour Q&A we did with James Cameron for Avatar The Way of Water, or the time Ryan Johnson introduced an exclusive screening of Glass Onion. There are also exclusive screenings of films before they are released in cinemas, and incredible virtual events as well. You can sign up at empireonline.com forward slash VIP. And you'll also get a window of exclusivity on the spoiler special feed for any Q&As like this before we put them up on the regular feed. Right, that's enough for me. Just time for me to wish all three of our interviewees the very best of luck at the Oscars next month. That's not favouritism, just good old-fashioned British courteousness, and I extend the same to all the nominees. And I should thank you as well for listening and supporting us through your subscription, whether it's to the spoiler special feed or to the VIP club. Okay, time for me to do my intro again, but this time in 2 minutes and 15 seconds. They say it can't be done. They're probably right. I do tend to ramble a bit. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.